With that, we will continue our study of God's Word, of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, turn in them to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And for this morning, we are going to be studying verses 15 to 24. John 14, verses 15 to 24. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Again, verse 15, Jesus speaking, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Let's pray before we begin. God, we are reliant upon you. Even as we've just read, we need much help. We need much assistance to not only understand your word, but to apply it. And so we ask that you would send your spirit, the spirit of truth, to convict and guide us, to lead us to the truth, to point us to Jesus, that we might live for him that we might bow the knee in submission and joyfully follow after Him, conforming our lives to what He calls us to. And Lord, we pray that You would give us the grace, the strength to endure, to do the things that might be hard and difficult, Lord, and to do them knowing that we trust in Your Word, we trust in uh, Your promises. And so teach us now from Your Word, God, to enliven our hearts to the realities and richness of Scripture, that we might respond in accordance. For those who do not know you, to give them the, the, the saving work of your Spirit, to bring them into the light. And for those who do, to instill within us a greater reverence and love for you and for others. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy Spirit, as you can gather, much of our message today centers around Him, the Holy Spirit. And depending upon your theological persuasion or your church background, I'm willing to wager your impression, your thoughts of the Holy Spirit probably falls into one of two camps. For some, hearing the words Holy Spirit, your automatic reaction is to put your guard up. The shields go up immediately. You think of those crazy televangelists who slay people in the spirit by throwing some sort of um, holy fireball at people. Or your mind gravitates towards those cuckoo charismatics that blabber in tongues or do all this hocus pocus in the name of the spirit. Now in this camp, the caricature of the Holy Spirit being portrayed and painted is some wispy and elusive character. The Holy Spirit is some inexplicable 
uh, untangible force like in Star Wars that just kind of governs our world and somehow, some way shapes and influences our feelings. Or he's some mystical, magical figure that kind of just lingers and floats in the air, much like Casper the Ghost. You see, when you hear of the Holy Spirit, you think of those that you wouldn't associate, those who are a bit more zealous in welcoming and claiming the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit a little too readily and happily. For others, your automatic reaction is quite the opposite. And I suspect for the majority of you, this is where you fall. In overreaction to the first camp, you go to the other extreme. Instead of embracing him, you shun the Holy Spirit. After all, you're a conservative, a Bible-thumping believer. It's all about doctrinal orthodoxy, doctrinal precision. It's all about the gospel and the glory of God. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, the Holy Spirit, we don't really speak about him because he makes us feel uncomfortable. He's like that awkward uncle the family's embarrassed of because no one really understands him and his weird mannerisms. Sure, the Holy Spirit exists, but only because the Bible says so. And so by default, we have to believe in him. When you hear of the Holy Spirit, you never admit it, but you think of the least significant person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit takes a backseat to the Father and the Son as the third fiddle. But beloved church, both attitudes, both camps fail to appreciate and rightly understand the Holy Spirit, who He is and His ministry. And let's just get one thing straight from the get-go. The Holy Spirit is a He, not an It. The Bible speaks about Him as a person as an entity, and He, the Holy Spirit, plays a crucial, a vital role in the life of a Christian. In fact, you could argue, and this might sound blasphemous and provocative, but you could argue no member of the Trinity is more significant and critical in the daily life of the Christian and the church than the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't believe me, you just have to do some digging. You just have to investigate and analyze the way Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. And He will. He will expand upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the coming chapters as we plunge further into the Gospel of John. But Jesus, for our time this morning, introduces us, merely introduces us to the importance of the Holy Spirit in our passage today. Now, before we actually get to tackling and talking explicitly about the Holy Spirit, we're going to have to do some legwork. And what we'll see, if you're following along in our outline in the bulletin, is first, the precursor of the Holy Spirit. First, the precursor of the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, Jesus says this, and it kind of shocks us because we don't expect it. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, again, if you consider the context of this chapter, the passage we just studied, and our topic for today, this seems like a strange transition. And it prompts us to ask, well, why is this here? Why is verse 15 here? If we consider the flow of the text, the promises that Jesus announces in the previous section are huge. They're wonderful, right? I go to prepare a place for you. You will do greater things than these. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do. Who wouldn't embrace such promises. 
And what verse 15 does is it narrows the field. The grand promises that Jesus offers and makes, they're not universal. They're not for every single individual. They're not guaranteed to everyone. Jesus qualifies. These promises are given to those who love God and keep His commandments. The gift of the Holy Spirit, as we will see, is reserved only for Christians. And that's why, to get a little ahead of ourselves, in verse 16, it begins with a conjunction, with an and, to show that the two are inextricably linked. Now, if the prerequisite, if the precursor is someone who is a Christian, how do we measure then the legitimacy of someone's faith? After all, you can say that you're a Christian, I can say that I'm a Christian. Rappers can say they're Christians, non-rappers can say they're Christians. So how do we measure the legitimacy, the authenticity of someone's faith? And this is what Jesus sets, the, sets out to address in verse 15. Because for us, when we look at people, we look at what they do to interpret their heart. You know, we think to ourselves, oh, he gave me flowers. He must like me. Oh, she slapped me. She doesn't like me, right? We examine a person's actions or behavior to trace back and figure out what's inside, their motivation, their desires, their wants. And that's all we can do because as human beings, that's all we can see. We can only weigh the what to go back to the why. And we know that this method has its flaws. It's not perfect because people are deceptive. People will do the right actions but with the wrong heart. And you know how we know this? Because I'm guilty of this. And I'm sure you are as well. You know, fine, I'll help, uh, help you out, Mom, even though I don't want to. You know, that's just an example, hypothetical from your life, not mine. Um, now, verse 15, again, is a conditional statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. And when it comes to conditions, the human heart has a weird way of handling them of interpreting them. It's almost as we're hardwired to get them backwards. And so we think to ourselves, okay, well, I love Jesus. I love Jesus and to show it, to prove it to everyone around me, I just need to keep his commandments. So here's my strategy. Here's what I'm going to do. I will dedicate all my energy and effort towards keeping his commandments so people will know that I, well, I love Jesus. But that's backwards. We flip-flop the whole thing by being obsessed with all of the doing because that's what we're accustomed to instead of first focusing upon the loving. And that's why the sequence of this condition is important. The sequence of this condition matters. Love comes first. And so instead of fixating on what needs to follow, we need to instead fill our hearts with loving Christ. Jesus is teaching us, you don't keep the commandments to earn and prove that you love me. That moves in the wrong direction. Your actions will naturally follow your affections. And so there's oftentimes no better thing to put into practice than to bathe your heart in the love of Christ. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. The two are inseparable. Yes, the doing and the obedience will come and they must come, but it must come after. So let's not be confused, church. To keep his commandments is not, is not the same thing as to love him. And that's why as human beings, 
we never have 100% certainty about someone because we can't evaluate their heart. And that's okay because God's eyes work better than ours. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. God doesn't see people the way we do. Again, we can only look at a person's actions to interpret the heart. But God looks at the heart to interpret the action. And this is God's standard for genuine Christianity. Not just superficial obedience, but obedience, driven, fueled, motivated by love for His Son. Jesus will return to this throughout our passage. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. The verbs in that verse, verse 21, has, keeps, loves, are present participles. And that communicates to us that these are expected, these are continual, habitual, characteristic of an individual, of a Christian. So that the pattern of a disciple of Christ is one whose love for Jesus is evident in obedience, in keeping these commands. Verses 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me, giving the negative side, does not keep my words. Church, Jesus is giving us a better definition. The sure sign of a Christian is someone who loves God and does what he says. Now, if we understand that this is something that must originate from inside, from genuine heart motivations, then if you're anything like me, you can feel devastating. Because when it comes to the heart, we are powerless. We are helpless. The problem isn't only that we can't see the heart, we also can't change it. It's not like we have a nifty button that we can press to alter what we love. It's not like we can tinker and transform our hearts directly with our hands. But the despair is necessary. Feeling weak, over even your own ineptitude to change your heart. Feeling weak makes us, therefore, look strength in another. That's why salvation, faith, Christianity is a work of God. That's why it's grace. He, God, has to intervene, reach down into our wicked, wretched hearts and give us new life, new affections, new desires, a new heart. You see, you and I, we can manufacture the appearance of obedience. But you can't manufacture true love and true obedience. Christianity isn't a system of sheer willpower and self-discipline. It is a matter of desperation for God. Heart change is something God has to do. And thankfully, He does. Which leads us to our second point from the precursor of the Holy Spirit to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. This is where we will camp out for the majority of our time. Now, first, before I get to how uh, God works in our lives, I want to warm our hearts to how He promises it, how He guarantees it. And so just jump down to verse 18 and follow along. Jesus says to His disciples, as His death is looming, His departure is inevitable. He tells them, I will not leave you, as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. These are great promises, hopeful truths. And this would have fortified the disciples. Because we know one of our greatest fears is being abandoned. And these disciples have devoted and invested three years of their life, night and day, to Jesus. And now he tells them where he goes, they can't follow. And at such words, the disciples might be shaken up. But Jesus' words here are infused with certainty. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus will come back. And so, of course, this is a reference to his resurrection, as we know, when he will appear again to them. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, because the resurrection is not only affirmation that he is who he says he is, but the resurrection changes everything from that point on. Though the disciples are struggling with Jesus' departure and death, he tells them to look beyond the grave and what the resurrection implies, how it is a game changer. He will resurrect and he will live. And if he lives, then the disciples can be just as sure. The disciples will live too. How can they be assured of this? The Christian's life is eternally tied to their Savior and Lord. His resurrection is only a preview for our own. For the Christian, there is no nail in the coffin. For the Christian, there's only a key, a way to an eternal place prepared for you and me. And as we saw last week, what makes this place, what makes heaven so great is the person we get to enjoy heaven with. This relationship is so inseparable. Jesus communicates the wonders and glories and mystery of this union in a way that should leave us floored. Look again at verse 20 says the unbreakable, everlasting, Trinitarian relationship that we can't fully fathom between the Father and the Son is now applied to us. The intimacy that the Godhead shares is shared with His children. And the prepositions in this verse accent this reality, this promise. Jesus is in His Father, and watch this. Jesus says, we enter into the picture. We are in Christ, and Christ in us. There's nothing closer than being actually in something. We are in Christ who is in the Father. Now just imagine that. For whatever reason, when I was reading this verse, I just think of those Matryoshka dolls. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Matryoshka dolls are those Russian dolls that stack and nest inside each other, and they kind of go from big to small until you get to that teeny peanut-sized one. Well, Jesus says his disciples are placed within the Trinity, secure, locked, to enjoy that relationship. And we can't fully comprehend the glories of this. We are drawn into the eternal divine relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as if it were our own. Now, how is this glorious truth realized? How is it made into a reality? How does this work if Jesus is leaving his disciples? That's why verse 16 and 17 are indispensable. Because Jesus will now inform us how all of this is accomplished and then applied into our lives. This is where we finally get to the Holy Spirit and his vital ministry. Look back up into verse 16. It says, I will ask the Father... 
and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you, you know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. Now, there's a lot here to try to unpack, and so we're just going to try to chip away and make our way through it. First off, just realize how outlandish this sounds. Jesus claims that his leaving is for the disciples' advantage. His departure is somehow the way, the means through which he will end up being with his disciples forever. It's almost as ridiculous as if I suddenly announced this Sunday, Oh, guys, I love being part of RBC, but effective immediately, I'm stepping down. I'm resigning. Don't worry, though. It's for your joy. It's for your benefit that I leave. Many of you would be shaken and sad. A few of you would cheer, the ungodly bunch. (laughs) But you'd all feel better about my shocking announcement if you found out that I was leaving so that John MacArthur could fill my post. Right? None of you would be shaken and sad. All of you would cheer. Oh, that makes so much sense. Go away, Alan. <laughs> Jesus' departure, you see, is for the disciples' benefit. Why? Because, hear this, he leaves, Jesus leaves, so someone better can come. Jesus will go to his Father, and his Father will send another helper, who is better because he remains forever. This word for another is a very interesting word. There are two words in the Greek for another, heteros and alas. Heteros means another of a different kind, whereas alas means another of the same exact kind. This nuance is important, and let me try to illustrate what differentiates them. So let's say our beloved Tony, he goes up to pick up uh, his new iPhone, but after fiddling with it, he fumbles it, and he drops his precious new iPhone. It's cracked and broken, so Tony, Tony, only as Tony can do on a whim, says, I'm going to get another iPhone, or another phone, sorry. Now, there's two ways you can interpret Tony's words. Perhaps he's frustrated with how fragile this iPhone is, and so he's done with it. The iPhone sucks. He's going to get another phone, a completely different brand, maybe a Samsung or Nokia or whatever. That's heteros, another of a different kind. He's going to get another phone, but not the iPhone. Or perhaps what Tony really means is that he loves his iPhone. And he's just as shattered as uh, the iPhone is. And so he's loyal to the Apple brand. He returns to the Apple store to get another phone, the same exact iPhone he just dropped and broke. That's alas, another of the same exact kind. When Jesus announces that the Father sends another helper, he uses the word alas. Just as Jesus has labored and watched over his disciples these three past years, the Father will send another helper, another of the same exact kind. So the disciples need not worry or fret. Now, who is Jesus talking about? Well, you only need to continue reading verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. This is the other helper. The Holy Spirit is the same exact kind, the very essence of the Son and the Father. And He will exceed Jesus' presence because He will help the disciples forever. Now, another interesting word is helper, which can be translated advocate. 
And for many of you, you know that Jesus is our advocate. You know verses like 1 John 2, 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the word advocate is maybe a bit more uh, sophisticated, but just think of a lawyer, someone who advocates for you. Jesus represents those who have placed their faith in him. And so what he does is he stands before God the Father and pleads our case. God, you can't punish Alan for his sins. He has placed his faith in me and I've already paid for them. Or God, you can't forsake Josh. He has placed his faith in me. He's a child of God. Now here in John 14, 16, we discover we have another advocate that we're doubly blessed. We have another advocate, namely the Holy Spirit. But then we might wonder, well, if Jesus is pleading our case before God, Who is the Holy Spirit pleading before? Are they double-teaming God? No. Here's the answer. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' advocate. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' advocate, and that's why he's called the Spirit of Truth, because that should trigger the bells in our heads. It sounds familiar. Just glance back at John 14, 6, where Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the Holy Spirit pleads Jesus' case before us. The Holy Spirit advocates for Jesus in our hearts. He comes to persuade us of Jesus' truth. When we are tempted to disobey and sin, He convicts us with Jesus' commandments and words. So that the dialogue becomes like this. Alan, you can't continue to lie. Jesus is the truth. Anthony, treasure the things above because Jesus goes to prepare a place for you. I think we'd be so helped if we understood the help we've received in the Holy Spirit. Because many, day, many people today have distorted the ministry and the advantage of the Holy Spirit. Many people have talked about being led by the Spirit And sadly, this has been abused as a way just to gain divine authority for selfish desires or a way to grant license to pursue something that they know is wrong. I've heard people say, oh, God is telling me to leave my spouse or that the Holy Spirit is leading me to make some unethical work decision. Really? That flies contrary to the very characteristic of the spirit of truth. He never leads us into sin or disobedience. And so one of the clearest tests of whether you are really led by the Spirit is if you are growing in obedience to the truth. The Spirit of truth always points to Jesus' truth. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has always been about casting a spotlight upon Jesus Christ so we might love, cherish, serve, obey, and live for Him. And the disciples have already been exposed to the Holy Spirit's ministry. Jesus states, The world neither sees him nor knows him, but you, you disciples, you know him, for he dwells with you. Which begs the question, well, when did this ever happen? Three years ago to the present. You'll remember the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he comes, he's he's baptized at the Jordan River, and then what happens? The skies part and the Holy Spirit descends upon him to inaugurate and empower all that Jesus does. Yes, we know Jesus is God, but he intentionally empties himself of his divine prerogatives and powers so that he can rely upon the Holy Spirit for the rest of his ministry. 
and amazing things happen from that day on. For three years, we read of Jesus performing miracles, teaching with authority, ministering with compassion, and living a perfect, blameless, holy life. For three years, the disciples had front row seats to what a life help and filled by the Holy Spirit looks like. Why? To show us, to show us and teach us how a Christian is to live, to model our relationship with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus relies and depends upon the Holy Spirit, how much more do we? And it's only by the Spirit that greater works are possible. Because there's a seismic shift. There's a new promise, a new angle to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's at the end of verse 17. It tells the disciples, For you know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. He will be in you. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would dwell with certain characters. One example is King Saul. You remember him? The Holy Spirit king, comes upon King Saul, and it empowers his reign. He blesses him. Saul successfully leads his people and defeats all his neighboring opponents. But when Saul turns and sins against God, what happens? The Holy Spirit leaves, and so does God's blessing, power, and protection. With the Holy Spirit's departure, Saul suffers defeat at the hands of his enemies, and his reign comes tragically to an end. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit rested upon a person, but only for a season. He would never remain. The Holy Spirit never dwelt within people. But Jesus announces that after his death and resurrection, a new era is dawning. The Holy Spirit will be in you. You need not fear being abandoned as orphans because God will never leave or forsake you, Christian. And the Holy Spirit is his guaranteed deposit in your heart. His life and ministry is vital to our life and ministry. And I'll just show this to you. After Jesus resurrects, he gives the disciples what we know as the Great Commission, right? He tells them something peculiar, though. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, but first, you have to wait. Uh, I want you to see this, so flip to Luke, Luke 24. Just the book prior, Luke 24, and we'll pick up in verse 45. This is Jesus. After he appears to his disciples, he's instructing them. After he opens their mind to understand the scriptures, he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, before the disciples, before we can fulfill the Great Commission, they must receive the promise of the Father. They must receive power from on high. They must have the Holy Spirit inhabit within them. Not just around them, but to reside inside their hearts. And this is exactly what happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. And Peter and his disciples, or Peter and the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. They proclaim the word of God boldly. 
Peter preaches the truth and thousands are cut to the core. Thousands repent and believe. Thousands are converted on the spot to Christ because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel spreads. Greater works indeed as the good news of Jesus Christ reaches to the ends of the earth. Do you see why the Holy Spirit is absolutely crucial? He is God's presence and power in us. The Holy Spirit is the channel through which we receive salvation and then we live it out. Without Him, we have no shot at heart change that loves Jesus and obeys His commandment. Without Him, we have no confidence of calling people to repentance and faith. Evangelism would be pointless. But with Him, with the Holy Spirit and His indwelling, Listen to this. We have every hope. We have every hope of transformation and of conversion of souls. With Him, we have every hope that we are not alone in the fight against our most grueling sin. That growth is more than possible. It is promised. With Him, we have every hope for reconciliation with people. People we've wronged. People who've wronged us. We have hope for restoration for the most broken of marriages. With Him, we have every hope for the most hardened soul, for that person you think can never be saved. Through the Holy Spirit, He can come. Because the Holy Spirit is in us to work in and through us. He is God's power and presence. Finally, and our shortest point, the proof of the Holy Spirit. The proof of the Holy Spirit. Flip back to John 14, and we'll round out our passage, beginning in verse 22. Judas, not as scared, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's. Who sent me? So we need to backtrack. Judas, not Iscariot, but another disciple, is thinking on a different level than Jesus. Jesus has just talked and elaborated about God dwelling within them, God showing themselves or showing Himself to them, and so Judas uh, thinks that Jesus' manifest manifestation is going to be visible. It's going to be physical. Okay, Jesus, I get what you're saying. You're going away and then you're going to return again. But how is it that we will be the only ones to see you, not the world? Are you just going to appear like in a corner of a room and just show yourself to us and then vaporize away? And we can picture Jesus slapping his forehead. Jesus is not just talking about coming to them in physical appearance. Jesus is talking about a deeper and greater manifestation. So he sidesteps Judas' question and returns back to love and obedience. You see, Jesus will be manifested to Christians and through Christians. We will show that Jesus is alive and well, that the Holy Spirit resides within us when our lives are marked and shaped by the reality of Christ's resurrection. The supernatural is made visible when we love one another and do the greater works. And this happens from the inside out. When the Holy Spirit inhabits in a Christian and then evidences it in a transformed life. Jesus ends where he begins on love and obedience. And yes, we stated before, 
We can't produce the proof by mere willpower or compliance. We can't just do the actions to show that we love God. We need our dead hearts regenerated and inhabited by the Holy Spirit to bear fruit rooted in love for Christ. But when that does happen, when the Holy Spirit does come, the fruit will come. The fruit has to come. You know how I can tell that my daughter Maddie is home? I only need to look around my house. You know, she's like the Tasmanian devil. Uh, her toys are scattered on the couch. Her snacks are half eaten on the table. Her mom is lying on the floor, just demolished. You know how you can tell that the Holy Spirit is at home in your heart? You only need to look around by looking at your life. There will be proof of the Holy Spirit if He lives, if He resides in a Christian's heart. After all, this is consequential to God living within you. The only place in the Bible where the Father and the Son are said to dwell in believers is in verse 23. And how do the Father and the Son dwell in believers? It's as we looked at previously through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that they are so connected and tied to have the Holy Spirit reside within you is essentially to have the Godhead dwelling in your heart. Back in verse 17, the Holy Spirit dwells as a divine representation in you. And when, divi- when the divine takes residence, there's divine overflow. Well, and I'll just show this to you practically by ending in Ephesians 5. So go ahead and flip there. Ephesians 5, look at verse 18, a very uh, familiar and at times confusing verse. Paul is exhorting Christians how if they uh, have newness of life, they are to walk in newness of life. And then he's going through different areas of life where this should be evident and proven in lives that are transforming. He says this in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if we end there, we think, oh my goodness, like this is something mystical, magical. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Is it, you know, just this feeling you get in your heart? Well, no. Paul charges Christians to no longer be filled and controlled by wine. And there's a parallelism here because as Christians now, they're not to be governed and and ruled by drunkenness, but they are to be governed and filled by the Spirit, to be controlled and compelled by the Spirit. Now, what does this look like? There's nothing mystical or spooky here. When the presence of the Father and the Son dwell in your heart through the agency of the Holy Spirit, godly things happen. Is that so startling? That when God resides in your heart, godly things occur. Look what happens, verse 19 to 21. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is why the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so important in the believer's life. His presence is so powerful, it will be proven in a transformed life. His ministry is so effective, it will leave evidence. You will filter everything through loving Jesus and keeping His Word. The Holy Spirit is vital to the Christian every day in every way. And as we will see and learn in the weeks and months to come, the Holy Spirit functions differently. He brings to remembrance the words of Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit illuminates our minds to understand the truth, to be conformed to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts of sin, creates holy affections, and cultivates godliness in our lives so that we represent our Lord and Savior. He is the perfect helper, the divine advocate who enables us to love Jesus and keep his words. And so let's end by praying and pleading that God would use the Holy Spirit rightly in our lives. Let's pray. God, what a glorious truth that you would come so near to us that you reside within us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we can take heart, that we are not abandoned as orphans, that we do not journey through this life by our own strength or smarts. But Lord, you would send your Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to guide us, to help us, to be an advocate and persuade us to things of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be here to convict our hearts, to expose to us ways in which we are prideful, sinful, ways in which we still treasure the world, that you might show us the better way, that through the spirit we might cherish and delight in the precepts and commands of Christ, knowing it is for our eternal good and for your glory, that we might bank our lives upon your truth and be anchored in your promises, that it would be evidence in a transformed life, a life devoted to your glory and praise. And so use your word and would your spirit, the spirit of truth, point us to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.